the scripture reading is always a point in the service where, where we hear from God. Um, and the scripture reading is brief, but it's important. And let's hear now from God. Uh, Paige Weeks is going to read this morning's passage. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. These are the words of the Lord. Last night, a friend of mine posted on his social media a picture of the Apollo Theater on 125th Street. And the marquee outside said what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Uh, attributing it to Dionne Warwick. She didn't write the song, but she was one of those who recorded it. Now, I don't know if that's what the marquee says today. It might be an old photo, uh, but he was somebody who was at the protests on 125th Street, and so I think it's a photo he took. And it had me reflecting on, on those words being put up and posted, if in fact those are the words that are there now. And I think they are good words. I think it's a good word. I found myself uh, reflecting on them and uh, really recognizing that the reason I think it's, it's a good word is because it's taken me years of coming to the point of being able to um, understand why it's true that what the world needs now is love. And so um, the Christian message is a message of love. And one of the things that I found in my experience when I first had become, uh, when I was first becoming a Christian, was that the, the message of love was not necessarily what drew me into Christianity. I didn't find it uh, needed. I didn't necessarily find it appealing. 
And I look back and I think part of it is that I was um, perhaps at the time shaped by a, a somewhat romantic view of love. Uh, the, the message God loves you, I, I took in categories that seemed um, maybe a little hokey, maybe a little bit corny. And so other things pulled me into Christianity. And yet over time, I have come to know and I've come to believe the love of God. Because the love of God is not something that's natural in us. It's not something we naturally see in the world, but it's something that comes to us. And part of Christian discipleship is joining with God and growing in that love and, and, and learning what, what love is. And now after these years of having to come, having come to know what the, the love of God is with greater understanding and depth, I now look at that sign and think, that's a good word. <laughs> this world now does need love, sweet love. Uh, I think if 25 years ago I was walking down 125th Street and I saw that marquee, I probably would have dismissed it as irrelevant. Or I might have, if I was paying more attention, been a little bit angry because it seems a bit trite. In the midst of deep troubles, here's just another message. <laughs> um, but having done life with Christ over these years and having come to to allow God to define what love is, I believe that that is a good word for our world. And that is the word that John has for us when he writes to us this letter. He's encouraging us to love one another. And, and love is such an essential component of spiritual life. And, and so that's what's going on in this passage that, that John is talking to people saying, God, God pours his spirit into you because he has loved you and he's, he's made you alive, spiritually alive. And so the message is, that we should love one another. That's verse seven, that's verse 21. The beginning and the end of the passage is to, to tell us that we should be loving one another. But this spiritual vitality in verse seven, whoever loves has been born of God. This idea that John brings to us about rebirth, about being made alive, that's what God does. He, he brings us uh, alive. And then what is that life lived by? Well, it's, it's characterized by love. Verse 13, he's given us his spirit. So when we're talking about the working of the Spirit in us, God's spiritual reform and renewal, uh, what's happening? Well, one of the things that he's doing is he's molding us in his love, but he's also uh, preparing us and teaching us and shaping us and sending us out to love others. And so in this passage where we're told that we should love one another, he's reminding religious people in particular <laughs> of one of the traps we fall into. See, the, the secular humanist trap is to say, if we love one another, that's enough. And the Christian response biblically will be like, if you love one another, it's going to break down when things get hard. It's not enough, unless it's God's love, unless it's really deep and profound and strong. But the religious mistake is to say, well, if I just do the, the things that are commanded, if I, if I do the practices, if I keep the commandments, then I must be loving God. And John is saying, but if you're not loving people, then something's wrong. Then something's wrong. Maybe this is the trap of, of falling into what all religion could offer you, is some discipline, some devotion, some place to cast your energies and cares. But if somehow you're connecting with God is not making you new in a way that you're growing in love of others, John would say there's something wrong here in your spiritual life. And so in verse 12, John says, if we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. 
And so, so one thing you could draw from this passage is that love is an evidence of God's spiritual working. If you're growing in love, uh, it's evidence, and it's something we should expect to see in Christians. Christians should love others. But I think he's saying something more here about spiritual life, that he's saying if we love one another, well, God remains, God abides in us, and his love is perfected. In other words, there's a goal in God's love. There's a, there's a place God is bringing us towards completion. And he's saying, as you take the love that God puts into you and you put it into action in how you behave towards others, then you grow in your love for God as well. And so there's this, this working together that you won't love people if you aren't loving God because God first loves us. That's this message. But John seems to be saying here, but, but if, if that love has come into you and it's not going out of you, then you're not going to grow and deepen in your love of God. And so what I want to focus on this morning is John encouraging us to grow in the love of God by loving one another, by highlighting for us the first love, that love has its origin in God and not in us, that it is God who's the initiator. We're not the initiator. And I want that to be our focus because this is what, what, what John and the Bible offers to us to say there is a love that that first comes to us, and it's that love that changes us, and that love that goes out from us. So uh, this first love, uh, this ties into some of what Justin shared when he was talking to the kids, <laughs> who goes first. There's a, it's a video game that one of my kids some years ago wanted me to play with him called Clash Royale. And the way the game works is it's one of, it's a, it's one of these um, d- uh, portable device games that you have these towers and you are against somebody who has towers and you have various troops that you could select from and some troops might throw a sword and, uh, or a spear or may, you, know, you could launch fire at a tower. It's all very biblical, especially if you read the book of Joshua. <laughs> so here's this, this game where, where you're, you're on these two sides and your towers have cannons that as troops get nearer could shoot them. But one of the key things about this particular game, the way they do it is there's something called elixir. An elixir, I actually don't know what it is, but but it seems to be the energy force that you need a certain amount in different troops. The stronger troops require more elixir and it goes from zero to 10. And when you put your troops out, it reduces the amount of elixir that the troops use. And then you need to wait. And I don't know what the rate is, but it feels like every second you get another unit of elixir. And when I started playing the game, I realized that, that part of it is, is managing the elixir because if you put out a bunch of troops and they go and then an attack comes and you have no elixir, you can't put any troops out. So you have to wait for it to build up. Uh, on the other hand, once it gets to 10, you don't want to sit there while it's waiting because then the other person's is building up. And so, so part of the, the game is managing your timing of elixir. And so I, I figured that was the key. And so the game begins every time where your elixir is building up until it gets to 10. And the lesson that I learned was the second it gets to 10, deploy your troop. Because if you wait till 11, then you've got a one elixir advantage of the, over, of the, of the other person if they wait. So this is how I approach things based on my analysis of the game. And then I realized at some point, I was always the one starting in the game. When, when the elixir hit 10, I was the first one to put my troop out, thinking that was the way to go. And then I found I would send my troops in, and typically they would get defeated, and then they would come against me and I would be low on elixir. And I realized that, that a couple of things were going on. One was, 
if, if I went first, they could prepare. They could choose what troops to match my troops. That gives them an advantage. But also, if I go first, not only do they have their troops, but they have their tower to shoot at my troops. So I send my troops out. They can match their troops. They've got the tower. They could take care of my troops and then launch an attack that I'm trying to play catch up on. So at first, I, I, was, I would find myself waiting a second or two and then going first and deploying the troop. And occasionally, in the tension, somebody would, would break the tension. But I found sometimes you could wait 30 seconds or a minute and that other person is just not going to move. That, that's their plan. Their plan is you go first. And so it's this strange phenomenon in how the game was designed that the whole game, and I could be wrong in my understanding of it, I'm not much of a gamer, but the whole game seems to be managing this resource well. But there's an exception at the start of the game that if you go first, there's a good chance you're going to be disadvantaged. And when I think about the Christian life where we're told God pours his spirit into you and he fills you with love and he sends us out and he says, he has first loved you, now go and love. And there's something about that that should resonate with us, that should capture our imaginations, that we should say we want to be part of those communities. We want to be in those families. We want our friends to be those kinds of people, the kind of people that are proactive and loving and aggressive and energetic. And yet somehow, as you go on in life, you find that in a lot of relationships, there is this weird point of waiting for the other person to go first. And so doesn't it make sense that, 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 that we agree that you just jump in aggressively and do the loving thing first? And yet somehow, most of us are a little bit hesitant. And sometimes the people that just refuse to love first are not people who have been unloving, but they're people who have loved generously and radically, um, but, but perhaps undiscerningly, they poured their love out on someone who did not repay it, but took advantage of it and used it. And the lesson that you learn is you don't do that again. You don't go first, you wait, and you prepare your defenses, and then you prepare to engage. And what happens is it means that the first instinct that Christ puts in us, the instinct to love, to be the, the first one, means love carries with it vulnerability. If you're the person that puts yourself out there, all of a sudden fear plays into this. What, what, what role does fear have? We're, we're not talking about fear, we're talking about love. Jesus says, go and love one another. Do it courageously, do it generously, do it honestly. And yet, having done that teaches us that that loving others is risky. And so our fears come up. What if I throw myself out there in love and they laugh, if they think it's ridiculous? What if I love the person who doesn't love me back and I face rejection? What if I love and then I love again and then I love again and it's one-sided and I'm always the one who's giving and I just burn out because there's not enough love in me. I need to receive. These are the kinds of things that, that we experience enough until we learn that life has a little bit of an interaction. Don't just throw yourself out there because that seems foolish. But what happens, going back to our, our game, the, the game is different because it's an attack game. Jesus's lifestyle is a love game. What goes wrong is if we are not going to lead with love, we wind up leading with something. And I wonder for how many of you in your hesitancy to lead in love, you find that the default is to lead with aggression, but that's the easier first move. And so whether it's a coworker, a family member, a spouse, a kid, a girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever it could be, 
you find yourself thinking, I know that I should be the generous in love. I know I should be the first, but I'm afraid. And then when things don't go well, even more important to be the one who loves first. And then we find that somehow that doesn't come as easy. But, but if we get annoyed, we're pretty quick to be the first event. We're not wait necessarily waiting for the other person to make the first aggressive move. move. And that shows that there, there's something that's gone wrong in us. There's something that's gone wrong between us. And so John is sending us out, spiritually made new, courageous, emboldened to love deeply. But he doesn't just tell us to do it as a principle. He doesn't just give us an ideal that warms our hearts. But he says, but remember, there's a first love. It's not just the love that's natural to you. It's not just the love that you've seen. It's not just the love you've experienced among the people. Hopefully, we've all had some measure of love uh, expressed to us. Take that and put it into practice. But there's a love, John says, comes to you from God of a depth and a quality that you don't otherwise see. That love comes first. And so verse 9, sort of a very famous verse, we love because he first loved us. And there's a lot of reasons why thinking of God as the originator of love, God as the first mover, God as the initiator, is profound. There's a lot there to really think about. And incidentally, um, this week we're looking at this passage, and we're going to look at the same passage next week. So we're going to look at 1 John 4, 7 to 21 over two weeks. There's a lot here. Um, but what I want to highlight for this morning, if you think about what it is that keeps us from loving, it's our vulnerability, it's our fear, it's the possibility of being rejected, it's the possibility of being scorned, of being laughed at, that highlights for us the nature of God, who he is, and the nature of God's love, that given that world, that reality, God loved first. And so verse 10 this is love. So John is not talking just about any, any warm feeling. He's just not talking about some romantic movie that we've seen. He's saying, in this is love, it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And it's that message that, that he loved first, not us. It's not that we loved God. And how is that as an initial premise? It's not that we loved God. When God loved us, it's not because we loved him. It's not because he knew we would love him. And yet he loved first. And that's something for us to sit with. What does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about us? What does that tell us about this high and wonderful calling where God sends us out? It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son. So God is the initiator. He's the one who moves towards. He's the one who comes to those who are not coming to him. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's the Christian message. God loves sinners. We know that. You look at your own life and the way sin plays itself out and, and, and how it affects you as one who loves and one who tries to love very safely we're very carefully, we're in a very controlled and perhaps stingy manner. God loves us in that, not that we loved him, but he sends his son to us when we didn't come at his calling. And he says his son was the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, kind of a hard word. And in fact, it gets debated on the translation of this passage. Other translations use different language. Some would say he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice or more, maybe more mild or a looser translation, he, gave him, he sent his son to give his life. All of that's true. 
the trouble we have with the word propitiation is it confronts us with something very difficult and that we can't hold together in a conversation about love and it, and it has to do with anger and wrath. One of the things we don't like about the word propitiation is it says that, that in the midst of this message of love, it's, it's a message that, that love comes where there is anger. And that's a hard message, but to the degree that we're willing to, to look, it tells us even more how profound the love of God is. And, and of course, because it can be so misunderstood, there's, there's a lot of people that understandably say this word propitiation uh, is confusing. Let's find a better word, because it's not something we use in common language. It's, it's, it's a word of the history of religions. And so some people would say, wow, it sounds like Christianity is proclaiming that God is just like the God of every other pagan or ancient religion. And uh, where the view is that, that, that God is like us, or the gods are like us, finicky, uh, finicky very easy to get angered, wanting to repay, very vengeful. And so the idea is we need to have some sort of religious practice, make some offering or sacrifice to appease the God. And some people say, is that what we're saying that God is like? And no, the answer is not that we have to do some dance, not that God is like us. The message here is, do you understand you are not like God? And so we don't need to play a game with God so that he'll no longer be angry with us. Anyone rejecting that, we should stand with. There's another sense in which sometimes people misunderstand the nature of the Trinity, very understandable, because who of us can really grasp that we're monotheists, we believe in one God, and yet that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you read through this very tough book of the Bible, and you read through it with your own interpretation and understandings, and you think, doesn't it look like the God of the Old Testament is this angry, furious God, ready for people to step out of line, and the second they do, He's going to punish them. But then the New Testament, we have Jesus. So nice and so warm and welcome. And so, so he goes and he allows the father to kill him so that we don't have to be killed. Some people understand that to be the Christian message and, and object to that because it sounds like a very problematic family dynamic, like an angry father who's about to hit the kids and the mother comes in as the very nice person and says, no, let me get in between you. And and some people say, is that how we're to conceive of God? That's not how God is presented. It's not that God sent his son, the father, in order to kill him. But God sent his son, and the question is, who killed him? <laughs> and the answer is us. So God invites us to join him, and the father sends the son, and the son says, I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so what did we do? God who loved first was their risk was their vulnerability. Well, what happened when the glorious son, who was announced as the beloved, as the king, as the one who through his righteous actions demonstrated the truth of God? Did we mock him? Did we laugh and scorn? Did we misunderstand him? Did we accuse him falsely? Did we condemn him unjustly? Did we murder him? You know, that's this message that, that God sends his love into the world. And, and we say, we don't want this word propitiation because it talks about anger. We want to hear about love. Well, God sends his son and there was anger. There was a crowd as Pilate, the conflicted leader, doesn't want to crucify Jesus and is trying to get out of it. And the crowds are yelling, crucify him. So if we have a problem with anger, the problem is ours uh, because we are not the first to love. We are the first to be aggressive. We are the first to reject. We are the first to scorn. And the set passage tells us in this is love, it's, 
It's not that we have loved God, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We hurled our anger and our hostility and our sin upon him. And what we're told is that he satisfied his own anger in it. (laughs) You know, if we can't conceive anger has to do with love, what about when the righteous son is mocked and rejected? Is it understandable that if God is holy and just, that that would be a situation that he would be angry? And we have in this scenario this conflict of sinful humanity and loving and righteous God. And we're told that as we initiate with our anger and hostility, the one who was sent willingly bears it so that he bears our hostility and extinguishes wrath. And so the reason we've gotten comfortable talking about love without anger is because we have some familiarity, hopefully, with the one who loved us first. And his love overcomes and defeats our hostility. It it quiets our anger because he is satisfied. This was something that that we didn't offer Jesus as a sacrifice. We offered Jesus as a condemned criminal, criminal. Jesus offered himself so that his life would be the righteous for the unrighteous, that wicked anger would be satisfied by meeting righteous anger. And that would change things. That would tell us that now we can be transformed to know that we who did not love first have been loved first. And how does that change things? Well, verse 18 tells us that now there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. See, see, the love that comes from God first is perfect love. The love that we spread around is imperfect love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. And what John is saying is if you're going through religious devotional practices but not loving people, you might be doing so out of fear. And so you need to go back to basics. Remember, it's not that you are the loving one. You are not God's gift to the world but you are part of this needy world, and yet God loved you. And if God loved you, don't relate to God now out of fear of punishment. Because when Jesus was crucified, it brought an end to that paradigm. We did what we do in all religions as we send our punishment to somebody else. And God did what he alone does, is he ends by offering himself as the one true sacrifice. And so now... There's a transformation in our fear that do we still fear God? Well, God is still great. God is still powerful. God still gets angry at injustice. But we're no longer servants who need to placate God. We no longer keep the rules so that God will reward us. But we remember that when we didn't keep the rules, God first loved us. And so fear, our sinful fear is changed because he first loved us. We no longer dread God because there's a day of accounting, a day of reckoning where we will have to give an account for our lives that is a truth that is terrible for us in our fear. We are afraid to love God because what if God rejects us? What if after all the wrongs we've done, God laughs at us? And if God has first loved, we're told, we need to understand who God is and set aside our own sinful views and understand that God's love is not like our love and God's anger is not like our anger. And so John tells us God is love. And that's so important. Verse 7 and verse 11, what is our identity? John writes to us as the beloved. 
when God tells us, when John tells us God is love, he's telling us something profound, but we have to understand he's not simplifying, he's not reducing God to his most basic essence, as if we could say, if God is love, then love is God, and they're the same. Remember in 1 John 1, 5, John said God is light. So he says God is love, he says God is light. And both are true. And one of the things about light is it reveals. But one of the things about revealing is it exposes. And so this message about God who loves us and invites us to him, though we don't love him, in our natural selves is, is fearful because we know if God is light, if God is holy, if God is just, if God is true, then there's no excuses. There's, there's no blame shifting. There's no doing what we normally do as we try to repair relationships rather than allowing them to be repaired by love. And so John says, God is light. And if God is light, our instinct will be to fear God in a sinful way. So John tells us, but God is also love. There is truth and justice, but there is also mercy and compassion. And both of those are so necessary because the message of love is meant to change us. John's thing is if you say you love God, but you don't love other people, you're just trying to comfort and distract yourself. But on the other hand, if you're afraid to be the first lover, you don't understand the nature of light. We don't need to fear truth. And so this new identity as the beloved is so essential because what it means is if that is our identity, if God has loved us, if we don't need to fear God's punishment, then it means that we can be the first initiator of love with others and we don't need to fear others' scorn or their rejection or their mockery or the suffering or the burnout of being the one who loves when we're loving somebody who doesn't love us in return. God first loves us to ready us for that, and then he sends us out. And that's so important um, because otherwise our, our love falls short. Remembering that love is light, or God is light and God is love, is so essential because it means for the Christian, truth is never our enemy. And as long as we're afraid of punishment, as long as we're afraid of condemnation, as long as it's our fear that's at work, we will never engage the truth. And yet we can engage the truth if it's true that God has first loved us. We, we can deal with the truth when it's wonderful and encouraging, but we can deal with the truth when it's convicting and exposing. And that's really important because Christians are called to be the first to love. That's this passage. If God has loved you first, now you go be the first to love others. And yet, in, in the events of this week and, and of the things we've prayed about where we see the deep roots of racism, it's kind of late in the game for Christians to be first. It's a little bit late for us to be the initiators because we're already tangled up in the problem. And that's painful. That's hard. That's something that's uncomfortable. It's something that's discouraging. It's something that's sad. And yet Christian discipleship is precisely preparing us to be the kinds of people that don't look away, that don't shift blame, that don't run, but people who say, if there's light, I want to draw closer to it. I want to get into the light. But what if the light exposes? Well, if it's true, we're not going to fear exposure because the one who is the light is also the one who first loved us. And so the Christian community has not been, in our track record, the first to love when we're called to love. But we need to be growing in, in the, the strength and the resilience to really believe if God first loved us, 
We don't need to be afraid of the truth and therefore we can engage with reality. And is this a promise that it won't be painful or that it won't be hard or you won't be laughed at or rejected? No. What we're told is that's what happens in this world. When you go into the world and throw yourself out there to love first, you are vulnerable. And so it's not a promise that when you're the first to engage in the truth and to walk in the light, that you'll be safe. What we're told is that you won't be defeated. What we're told is that you won't burn out if you abide in God. What we're told is if people take advantage of you, God will give you more love. And so we have to remember it's never that we first loved. It's always that God first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And now we're told he sends us in the likeness of his son to love others as his son has loved us. And so I want to uh, encourage you. I've been talking about the first love, but here's the application. Love first. I want you to do this. I want this to be a new habit, a new practice. I want this to be what we do. Are we willing to be people that will love first? Verse 16 says, so we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love. And this is where faith is needed. Do we believe that? We come to know. We need to learn. We need an understanding because we don't know what love is. And we need to believe it because love doesn't come from us. It's not an intuitive, go with your heart, but it comes from God into our lives. And so we come to know and we need to believe it because God is love. And therefore, our faith is not in love as an amorphous power, but our faith is in God. And we're told, if you throw yourself out there, but you abide with God, well, then do it by faith and trust him. Trust him that all your dreams will come true and everything will go well. No, trust him that he might be using you to be the first to be ridiculed, but love anyway. He might be using you to be the first to be hurt. And that's where in a time like this, the others that are already out there being hurt, the ones that are already the first, those of us who are late in the game, uh, we need to not let fear be the thing that keeps us from stepping out and recognizing this won't be easy, but God has first loved us and he will, he will give us the love. And so we have to watch our instincts. I want to respond in anger. I want to do the blame shifting. I want to do what everyone always does. And we have to say, but I believe that God is love. I've come to know and believe the God love that God has for us. And so now I will be faithful. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's the point. It's not just that we take this principle, but if God has loved us, that's your identity. Beloved, you are people God has loved. He loved you first. If that's how God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so be the initiator. And we need to think about this broadly. We need to think about this socially. We need to think of that, us as a church, how we do this. But where you put this into practice this week, you've got other people you're in relationship with, the people that you live with, the people that you're meeting over Zoom or you're calling with. You have to be wise. And there are sometimes there are relationships where you're always the one who initiates and you're in relationship with somebody who never does. And over time, sometimes you recognize this relationship will never deepen. It's not that you stop loving the person, but you just recognize if I'm always the initiator, this real, you know, if you're dating that person, you don't marry that person, <laughs> hoping that it'll get better. If, if, if love is one-sided, you don't stop loving, but you just recognize that love may mean this relationship doesn't doesn't progress. But we need to be the initiator because sometimes people are afraid to love or sometimes people misunderstand or sometimes there's several efforts to really draw people out. Sometimes people are hardened or people are burned or sometimes people misunderstand. And it's this imperfect world where, where if collectively we are prepared to be the initiator, 
then that allows space for some of our imperfections and it allows us to, to have people come after us. And I would also encourage you, don't wait for others to be the initiator. Don't be a tester. <laughs> so if you're angry that others aren't initiating, it's, it's evidence you're not initiating. And I don't say that lightly because if things are unfair, they're unfair. And, and I know that's hard. But we need to be the initiator. We need to be the one who loves. And so I'm going to encourage that to be the new instinct. It will be easy to initiate with blame. It will be easy to initiate with accusation. It will be hard to initiate with love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so do this in relationships. But, but in a more focused way, I want to encourage you to do this in conflict. Where you're interacting with somebody and it's too late, <laughs> you're already vulnerable. The hurtful thing has already been said. The anger has already been manifested. At that point where you want to shut down, we're told, be the one who initiates. In other words, where there's an opportunity to reverse the direction, to say the kind thing, to offer the apology, to stop and get clarity, to, to bring wisdom into it. When you catch yourself saying, what I really want to initiate with is now the thing that five years ago has been bothering me, and I want to throw that into the mix. You stop yourself and say, well, that would be easy. <laughs> that would be natural. What would be hard would be to stop and say, even if that's true, I'm going to initiate with some honesty because we're not afraid of the light. And so we need to be doing that. We need to be practicing that so that when something so big and overwhelming shows up, like the murder of George Floyd or whatever else it is, we need to be strengthened spiritually to be told you might need to be the first here. You might need to be the one who throws yourself out here. And unless we are doing that as a community, we won't be able to respond together as a community. And so, so this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let me pray for us. Our father, it's not that, that we have loved. It's not that we by nature overflow with love. As we come into your light, we see that we are filled with hurt and hostility and anger, and we don't engage the truth well, and therefore we perpetuate aggression, and we don't satisfy it. But Lord, you alone have. Jesus came to offer himself an atoning sacrifice. He gave himself to be the propitiation so that our unrighteous anger would be heaped upon him and your righteous anger would be satisfied so that we would no longer be controlled by fear of judgment, but that we would be filled with a spirit that renews us in your love. Lord, we confess that we continue to fail. We confess that despite the fact that most of us have read this passage numerous times, we're still not doing it. We confess it's easier to try to be moral or religious than it is to walk in daily truth, to love you, and to love others. And so, Lord, be at work in our hearts and minds to fill us with this love that comes from you. Thank you that you loved us first. Help us, even if we're now third or fourth or late to the game, help us to have the courage and the faith to step out and to be those who initiate, to those who have been loved first, and so we're never the first to love. We will always be the ones who have been loved first and let that mean that we initiate wherever we go. So Lord, do a spiritual work in us and we pray for our church, Lord, as we think about not only how to love one another, but how together we can love our world 
boy, this is so hard and confusing. We need the leading of your spirit. Help us to do that. That the love with which you have loved us would empower us to go into this world, that we would be those who first love. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.